Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for the chance to serve you. And I thank you that you've granted us this chance in the year we've had to reach so many with the word and to, to be ministers of the gospel through technology and through personal contact. But most of all, Father, by the, the truth telling of your word, by dividing it rightly as best we can and by offering it to others, we serve in the ministry of the gospel. We serve a great God who has a great message, a message that has the power to save to change lives, to turn people away from sin and toward a future in the kingdom. You've done that to each of us in a day that was appointed. We came to you, Father, not through any intellect or strength of our own, and certainly not with any merit. We came, Father, on our knees because that's the only way we could, and we thank you for that grace and for that blessing and for the privilege that it is to share it with others. And as we continue in this walk with you, there's still so much we have to learn about who we are in Christ and who you are and how we are to serve you better. We ask that the word of God tonight would be a lamp to our feet for that walk and that it would illuminate clearly, Father, where we may walk in paths of righteousness and turn away from things that do not please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight is chapter 19, and in it is a last step before we see the giving of the law, which is such a dominant part of the book of Exodus. Technically, we've been in the third part of the book in the way I divided it in the first night. And we've been there for the last three chapters. This third part is the chronicling of the giving of the law to Israel. Even though you don't see the law beginning to be explained and given until chapter 20, technically, we've been in the giving of the law all the way back since chapter 16. Why? Well, you've already seen with me at various points, God beginning to give early commandments or early ordinances to the nation of Israel concerning how they were to approach him or how they were to understand their relationship with him. He's already begun to demand their obedience to some of these things. But all of those earlier mentions of statutes and regulations, that's just the warm up act for the main event, which is starting in chapter 20 next time we meet. And in chapter 20 and onward, the giving of the law is the centerpiece of our narrative. And the giving of the law happens really in the context of the giving of a covenant. So the real conversation of the narrative after we leave this chapter tonight will be on a covenant and on its obligations and on its terms and on the parties to it. And so that becomes the real focus. Before we get there, though, we still have one thing left to do in tonight's chapter, and that is to see Israel move finally to the base of Mount Sinai and camp there. There are some preparations that God institutes for them before he can meet Moses and begin delivering what we know to be the law. Those preparations also include rules and regulations, but the rules and regulations are regarding how they are to approach God and how they are to approach the mountain. Start there, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. That's where we'll begin. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses tells us it's been three months since they left Egypt. Once again, their arrival date is precise in a way that reminds us God is guiding them in this process and bringing them here at an appointed moment, at exactly the time he desired, exactly three months after they had exited Egypt. At that point, they are told now to arrive at the mountain in Midian. This is sometime in either May or June, based on when we said they left after the Passover. 
They've been camped in Rephidim for a short time. We know that when we studied that earlier, that Rephidim is part of a mountain range called Horeb. So the Horeb mountain range includes this place called Rephidim where they've been. We were told back then that that place they were in was near the place where they would be camped at Sinai. So they've been approaching along a mountain range, coming to the place they've now arrived at, at the base of the mountain of Sinai. And throughout that time, they've been along this range called Horeb. And that's explaining why we've seen the term Horeb and the term Sinai used somewhat interchangeably. Horeb is the mountain range. Sinai is the mountain within the range, like Pikes Peak is a mountain in the Rocky Mountain range. Now they come to rest at that point, and that's verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So as they camp, Moses receives his first instructions from God. Moses is told to go up to God and God called to Moses, we're told, from the mountain. So we're seeing, obviously, God at a higher point than Moses calling Moses up this mountain. He must have walked some distance. We don't know how far, but he walked some distance from the people. He approaches the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And remember, they've been following the Shekinah glory of God in the desert. So they have a physical manifestation of God's glory, which has already made itself known. And as I would understand this, that physical manifestation has rested itself somewhere up on the side of this mountain, sufficient to be higher and to call Moses up and away from the people. You can imagine the mountain to have some foothills and some early rise and then later a, a more steep climb. But this is not the thing that you're waiting for. If you've seen the movie, this is not when the top of the mountain is all afire and so on. That's yet to happen. This is simply that Shekinah glory that God has manifested coming into this place, leading Israel into this place and then setting itself off a short distance away so that it can have a conversation with Moses. And it calls Moses up to to talk. He does not climb the mountain, though. Then the Lord begins to speak to Moses concerning what is about to happen. The delivering of the law, in other words. In verses 3 through 6, which I just read, we find the heart and the purpose of the law. Some have called these verses the most theologically significant verses in the entire book of Exodus. And I understand why they would say that. It is the linchpin between the covenant that was given to Abraham and now a new covenant about to be inaugurated with Israel. And there are several points here we need to learn. First, the law is given to the house of Jacob and to the sons of Israel. Obviously, the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel are one and the same. The covenant, therefore, and the law that it contains within that agreement is between the Lord and the people of Israel. The terms of this agreement are only binding on that group. There's a common misconception, in my experience, among Christians, that you are under these same rules that believers are bound in some way by the rules that you find in the law of Moses, that we share somehow in this covenant, that we are bound by it, we should observe it likewise. The reality of Scripture is very different. Only the Jewish people are bound by the terms of the law given through Moses. Period. Gentiles, 
are never a party to this covenant. Paul teaches us that clearly in Romans 2.14. He says the Gentiles are those who do not have the law. And again in Romans 2.17, Paul identifies the Jewish people as the ones who have the law. And he isn't meaning with respect to knowledge or awareness. He's speaking with respect to the covenant, to the terms, to the agreement. Nevertheless, we also know that all men, both those who have the law and those who are without the law, will be judged by the law of God. Romans 2.12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The Jews are under the law, Gentiles are not under the law, but we can both be sinners and therefore we can both be judged by the law. But the covenant does not establish his right to judge. All men are already under the penalty of God's law, even before he chose to reveal it to Israel, much less to you and I. That's where I think the misunderstanding comes in. You do not have to be under the law in order to be judged by it. God didn't have to institute this covenant or assign it to Israel or reveal the law in order to be able to judge people by the law. All men, we're told, are already under the penalty of God's law long before he revealed it to Israel, and it continues to be so today. Even the Gentiles, who are not party to this covenant, are still judged according to the law. Once we come to faith in the Messiah, whether Jew or Gentile, we are no longer under the penalty of the law. Jesus takes our place in that way, in that judgment. And he fulfills the law's requirements by his own sinless life. So at our judgment, we will be found to be vindicated because Christ's perfect life is credited to us through faith. For those who have not received that propitiation before they die, they will stand for judgment on the basis of their own works and the law will condemn them on that basis. And they cannot survive that judgment. So through this covenant, God grants Israel essentially a preview of the standard by which all men will be judged on their judgment day. They had the benefit of knowing the standards by which God judges men. Nevertheless, we also know Israel is bound to following these requirements, these rules and ordinances and commandments, according to the covenant, they're bound by that covenant. And if they do not keep all of these commandments, they will face certain penalties. And I'm not speaking about the eternal. I'm speaking about in the life of the nation on earth, there will be penalties assessed for their failure to keep this covenant. So had God never given the covenant to Moses, to the nation of Israel, the law would still exist. We would still be sinners and we could still be judged by it. But by grace, God made available the knowledge of law for the purpose of revealing sin, which we'll look at more later. But it was only binding on one group of people, the nation of Israel. Secondly, we're told in these verses, God enacted this covenant having just delivered Israel out of Egypt. That statement is a direct reference to the covenant that God gave to Abraham. Remember I said that these verses are a linchpin between the Abrahamic covenant, which came first, and now this covenant, the Sinai covenant? These verses, 3 through 6 in chapter 19, they show what the connection between these two is. By linchpin, we mean that the covenant of Abraham foretold certain events in the lives of Abraham's descendants. God told Abraham that his descendants would be numerous, like the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore, that they would be sojourners or wanderers in a land that is not their own, that they would be enslaved for 400 years in this foreign land. 
Then after that, God said to Abraham, but I will redeem them, I will deliver them out of Egypt, and I will bring them back here after 400 years. That's what God promised. At this moment, he has now done all that he promised, all that he promised in earthly terms to Abraham. So he first reminds the people that he is trustworthy and he is covenant keeping. And then that gives rise to what's coming next in Israel's relationship with the Lord. Now that he has shown himself faithful in that covenant and has, from an earthly point of view, fulfilled that covenant, not eternal fulfillment, there is a greater fulfillment that is yet to come of the Abrahamic covenant. Now what? The Sinai covenant. This covenant will begin a new dispensation in God's plan of redemption. Rather than work solely through a patriarch and his family, now the Lord commits himself to a people and a nation which came from that man. And the covenant he is establishing here in chapters 20 and beyond will be the next phase in his plan to bring the seed, the Messiah. So these verses are the linchpin to connect God's earthly fulfillment of one covenant to the next stage that is the inauguration of the Sinai covenant. But I want to make a clarification that's utterly important to understanding what I'm saying. The transition between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant is not one of succession, but rather of elaboration. God is not signaling that the Abrahamic covenant is coming to an end and a new covenant is taking its place. On the contrary, the Abrahamic covenant continues on perpetually, while the Mosaic covenant will merely come alongside it for a while. We hear that from Paul in Galatians 3.17. He says, what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if that inheritance is based on law, speaking of what he gave to Abraham, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Abraham's inheritance and our share in that inheritance that comes by the new covenant did not come by law, Paul says. It came by a promise. When the law came to Israel, a law can't change or improve upon a promise from God. If you got a promise from God, that's as good as gold. Nothing else can make that promise any better, any sure, any more solid, any more dependable, any better. So this new covenant is being paired together with the original Abrahamic covenant for a time and for good reason. So the second thing we understand is that what's coming now in chapters 20 and later is a new phase of relationship for God to Israel, one that's built upon the earlier covenant, but is coming alongside it now for some important reasons related to sin. And we will study those reasons in greater depth next time we meet. Third thing we learned from those verses. God tells Moses that this covenant is about taking possession of Israel in a unique and special way. God taking possession of Israel in a unique and special way. The Lord says, all the earth is his, that though he owns the entire earth, he is preparing now to designate Israel in a special way. Through this covenant, Israel will assume a unique identity. They will be set apart from all the other nations on the earth. Among all the peoples of the earth, Israel will forevermore have a special place because of this covenant. This distinction 
will serve purposes both today in the current age we live in now and in the next age, that is the kingdom. In this age, the nation of Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God. They will host the Lord's dwelling in the temple. They will be the nation that the Lord chooses to dwell in on earth. They will be the ones to bring the seed of Messiah into the world. And then in the kingdom to come, Israel will serve the Lord in his temple as he rules over all nations on the earth. And Israel will be the chief nation on the earth in that day. And then lastly, these verses tell us that the opportunity to have this special relationship with the Lord is contingent upon Israel keeping this covenant. They are to obey his voice and keep the covenant, God says. This is a parody covenant, which is different than a suzerainty covenant, which is what God established with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant was a suzerainty covenant, which is a type of agreement or a type of covenant between a superior and a vassal or a lesser, one who has no authority relative to the superior. In the case of Abraham, of course, God was the superior and Abraham was the lesser. And in a suzerainty covenant, the greater, the Lord in this case, sets all the terms, grants the covenant unilaterally to Abraham, and does so without any agreement on the lesser's part. The lesser has no choice. They get it whether they like it or not. They have nothing to say about it. They cannot refuse it. And they cannot alter any of the conditions. And most importantly, there are no obligations for the lesser. So it is essentially a one-way grant from the greater to the lesser, where the greater has all the obligation, the lesser just receives whatever has been appointed for them. It just happens. Because on the power of the greater, it can happen. That's the style of covenant that we have in the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is the root covenant from which we have the new covenant. So the new covenant is a suzerainty agreement. God gives us faith. He gives us the grants that come with faith, the salvation that we acquire through that faith. It is a one-way grant from the greater to the lesser because as the lesser we had no chance to participate in that covenant. The Sinai covenant is a parity covenant and a parity covenant is a different style of covenant between two parties who may not necessarily be equal in status but both have a role in the covenant. That's the distinction between suzerainty and parity. In this case both must agree to the terms, both have obligations under the covenant and if they do not keep their obligations, either one, there are penalties. There are out negative outcomes as a result of their failure to keep the terms of the agreement. So here we're looking at a parity covenant. Now, I hope it doesn't ruin the end of the story for you if I tell you that Israel does not succeed in keeping this requirement. They not just disobey, they always disobey. They constantly disobey. In fact, they disobey just a few hours after having been given the commandments in the first place. So how does this covenant manage to stand if it is a parity covenant in which both parties have obligations and one party can't hope to keep it? Well, in the later books of the law, which we obviously are not studying as part of this course, but in later books of the law, particularly Deuteronomy, you get your answer to that question. The Lord constructs this covenant in such a way that the agreement will survive Israel's disobedience. He puts provision in the law that say that if and when, and more emphasis on when than if, the nation disobeys the terms of the agreement, the agreement will still remain in force through a series of penalties and curses which will attach. 
when they fail the covenant, the covenant doesn't dissolve. The covenant persists, but now it persists in a form in which they're receiving a bunch of penalties and curses from God as a result of their disobedience. Ultimately, those penalties take the form of the seven years of tribulation, which if you were part of the Revelation class, you remember this as we studied then the covenant that we're seeing here becomes the basis in law for the Lord to justly reject Israel at their Lord's first coming and harden them for a time and then subject them to curses, including those of the tribulation, in keeping with the agreement they're making through this covenant, because all of that is spelled out in the agreement. And in that span of time that Israel is being dealt with through discipline and judgment, God is taking the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this covenant, and more specifically, I should say, the nation's disobedience to this covenant, gave the Lord a just basis for sending the gospel to the Gentiles in place of his chosen people for a time. But then at the end of all of that, he restores Israel and brings them into glory, saving the nation, as Paul says, and at that moment, setting up the kingdom for them. The terms for that are also found in the law, as you studied with us in chapter 26 of Leviticus when we did the Revelation study. So if this is all blowing your mind, that's just, oh, I hope, a motivation for you to go take that course if you haven't already. Or retake it, as probably most of you are sitting here thinking you probably need to do. So the fourth point is that this covenant is a parity covenant in which there are requirements for both parties and it carries a set of Negative outcomes, a set of judgments for Israel should they fail to keep this covenant. So the blessings of it will come only through their obedience to the covenant. In fact, you might ask yourself, how is it they're going to maintain perfect obedience to this covenant if that's the requirement in order for them to receive all the blessing? Well, the only way they could get there is if they're sinless, right? When the nation of Israel is sinless, they will see all the blessings of the covenant attach. When will that happen? In the kingdom. It is not a covenant, however, that has anything to say about any individual's personal salvation. It's a national covenant given to a nation of people to establish a set of principles and outcomes for that nation over many, many millennia. For an individual, its purposes are entirely different and play out in an entirely different way. So God is making a covenant with the nation of Israel, but it's not with the Gentiles. It no longer binds a believer, whether Jew or Gentile, once they come under the new covenant. Secondly, it is a bridge between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, which comes in Christ. It does not replace the Abrahamic covenant. It does not enhance the Abrahamic covenant. It comes alongside it, and it does so as a contrast, revealing sin rather than producing righteousness. And then thirdly, it establishes Israel as the chief nation on the earth, as unique possession of the Lord for his glory and for his purposes. And then finally, it comes with terms for Israel. It's a parity covenant. So they have to keep their end of the agreement or else they suffer the penalties of the covenant. But by their failure to keep the covenant, the Lord creates a just way to send the, the gospel to the Gentiles through the new covenant. That's a lot of theology to start our study tonight. This is serious stuff. This is actually one of the hardest things you'd probably study in all scripture. That is the meaning and purpose of law in relationship to grace of the new covenant. We're going to learn its purpose its intentions, both for the nation and to an individual, how then we relate to it, standing where we are now in Christ. That's coming as we go through the study. But for now, let's go back into chapter 19, verse 7 through 15. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain to touch the border or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. That's a verse. Never mind. There's no way I go with that without getting into trouble. All I want to say is that I noticed Jose underlying that verse. <laughs> so Moses comes down and he announces these terms to the elders of Israel. Let's take some note. Here's where good observation goes a long way. As they hear what the Lord is granting to Israel, the elders are understandably excited. They're understandably eager to receive this blessing. So they immediately agree to the terms. Now, notice they're agreeing to the terms of the covenant without ever having heard the details of this covenant. That's a rash decision, as it turns out, since they don't know what they're signing up for at this point. But it doesn't matter. They've just agreed to it. Notice it says in verse eight, all the people answered in agreement. Now, when you read that, who do you think all is? It's got to be the elders in context. Grammatically, it's traceable back to that point where it's the elders. Right. This does not mean all two plus million people are hearing and agreeing. I, there's no possible way for them to deliver it to that many people in an efficient way and get an answer back. Never mind. You think too many people agree on anything. There's no chance that's even the intent here. There's no need for it either because Moses had instituted Jethro's suggestion. And so now he has the leaders appointed and the nation is represented by their elders. So if the elders agree to the covenant, then they bind the entire nation by their agreement. That's exactly the same way it works in our nation. By the way, elected representatives in our country can bind all of us to something by their decisions. That same principle was at work in Jesus day when Jesus was on the earth in his day in Israel. He brought the offer of the kingdom to the nation of Israel. Had Israel accepted that offer, theoretically, then Jesus would have set up the kingdom for them right then and there. And we would have never had the opening for the Gentiles. But not every person in Israel had to accept or reject him in order for a decision to be rendered. It was sufficient for the elders of Israel at that time, who were the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, generally those who had the power in the religious sense within Israel, to make a decision for the sake of the nation concerning Israel. And they made a decision. They said when they saw the miracles, they said, this is not done by the power of God. This is done by the power of Beelzebub. And when they stated that, they committed the unpardonable sin. That generation of Israel would not have further opportunity to receive the kingdom, but would be prevented from that point forward. So at that moment, the unpardonable sin had been committed. The one and only time it can be done when someone looks upon Jesus and rejects him to his face when he comes to offer the kingdom. So as Pharisees, as elders of that nation, they rejected Jesus on behalf of the nation. And so all the nation suffered with them in that rejection. You see the same principle working here in reverse. They all accepted it for the nation. They were wrong both times. 
Moses delivers the report to the Lord. He says, we accepted your terms. We've accepted the covenant. This is the moment in which they've made verbal agreement to the covenant without ever having heard it. Next, the Lord begins to teach Moses and Israel on how they are to approach him at this point, because what still has to happen, of course, is all the details of the law now have to be passed down. First, the Lord tells Moses how the nation will experience him. He says, I'm going to descend on the mountain in a thick cloud. Then you're going to hear my voice when I speak with you. In fact, all the people are going to hear my voice when I speak with you. Now, the Lord himself isn't going to be visible since the Lord is going to be concealed by this cloud from the people, but they're going to hear him when he's up there. The writer of Hebrews says that when this finally happens, it is an absolutely terrifying experience for everyone involved, including Moses. This is what Hebrews 12 says, 12:18. Speaking to the church, the writer says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and to gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So the Lord wants to make this impression upon the people so that they will believe in Moses. You notice that he says, this will be so that they will believe in you forever. That's a puzzling statement when you stop to think about it. He says, I want the people to believe in you forever, Moses. Well, it's only puzzling until you understand what he means by believe in Moses. The Lord doesn't want people to believe in Moses, the man. He wants them to believe in Moses, the word of God. In other words, the word Moses delivered is what he wants them to believe in. So in this case, we're talking about the law and the rest of the Torah. They would believe in what Moses wrote because of what they saw in connection with with what was delivered to Moses. So Moses' writings are intended to last forever. We're to believe in Moses forever, in other words. The word of God will never pass away, so the words of Moses are to be believed forever. And in preparation for the Lord's descent to the mountain in the cloud, he says, in three days I'm coming, in three days you're going to see my glory in the form of this thick cloud come and descend upon the top of this mountain, but it's going to wait for three days. And in the meantime, during those three days, I want to see the nation engage in some ritual cleansing behavior. The people have to wash their clothes and then their bodies, presumably, and remain consecrated for the arrival of the Lord. Now, consecration just means to be holy, to be set apart from sin. Now, obviously, the nation could not separate themselves from sin entirely. If they could, we wouldn't need the law. The point is not that they wouldn't have sin. The people are sinful by nature and nothing short of the resurrection is going to solve that problem. So the holiness that we're trying to institute here has to be understood in a lesser form, in some lesser way. They're going through a ritual consecration, a ritual separation from sin, not an actual separation from sin. Ritual cleansing or ritual consecration, which we are going to study in the law at various points, means performing symbolic actions that picture a spiritual cleansing. Performing a symbolic action that pictures a spiritual cleansing. Like any picture, the ritual cannot substitute for the greater reality. It merely provides a substitute that serves to remind us of the need for the reality in its greater form. So, by comparison, why do we get wet when we get baptized? Why do we go into the water? Why do we go through that whole routine? We understand it's not saving us. It is not performing any spiritual magic on us. Why do we do it then? It is a picture. It's a lesser form of something that then brings our mind to the reality of something in a spiritual realm that has much greater significance. I can't see the spiritual, but I can see a body in water. 
So I see the picture to understand the thing I can't see and to witness to it. Similarly, I go through ritual cleansing when required, according to the law, if I'm under the law, because in these picture forms, things are being brought to mind that are necessary in a spiritual way. But they cannot substitute for them. So in this case, they're told to wash themselves, wash their clothes, and then refrain from sexual activity, presumably to avoid bodily fluids, which, again, are not in and of themselves bad, but they contribute to an uncleanness according to the ritual, and so they defeat the purpose of remaining clean. This greater reality that's being pictured is spiritual cleansing. So physical cleansing is coming to picture spiritual cleansing. How does spiritual cleansing actually come? How does the greater actually arrive? Only through faith in the Messiah and from his blood cleansing us from all unrighteousness. The washing of the body and the putting on of clean clothes pictures that better cleansing that we have by the blood of Christ in which our sins are washed and we wear robes of righteousness as it's depicted in Revelation. So they're being told to do things in preparation for God's arrival that bring these greater spiritual truths to mind. But they can't take the place of the real thing. In fact, even if this ritual was followed perfectly, the people who were standing there after three days waiting for God were no less sinful than they had been before they started the whole process. Human works cannot erase sin. You can see that clearly in verse 12. Even after the nation had followed the Lord's commandments regarding the ritual cleansing, he says, you still can't come close to me. You can't even touch the mountain. Despite your ritual cleansing, you are too unworthy to even approach me. That's our proof that this ritual cleansing did nothing of any material sort to change their nature. They would be subject to death. Why? Well, the mountain is about to become a temporary dwelling place for a holy God. And our sinfulness, if it comes into contact with the just and holy God, will immediately result in our death. That's why the Lord here is determined to remain in a dark cloud. That's to protect the people from God's wrath and his holiness. That's the same reason why God gave Adam and woman advanced warning of his approach in the garden after the fall because he knew they had sinned. And if he were to come upon them by surprise and brought them into his presence, that would be the end of them. So they hear him walking in the cool of the day. Why? Well, because God's rustling leaves. I'm coming. I'm coming. And then their natural sinful instincts kicked in and they felt jeopardy and they hid themselves. God being gracious in that way. Going to verse 13, the Lord states, anyone or any animal that even touches the mountain or crosses the border of the mountain, this is a border God has designated, will die. Only when a ram's horn is blown, May they approach the mountain. The blowing of the horn was the sign or the signal that the Lord was ready to meet with his people. That feature, by the way, also forms a picture for us of something that is to come later, a picture that will apply to us personally. The Lord will use a horn, we're told, a trumpet to announce his arrival for his church and our opportunity to come to him, the onset of the rapture, in other words. So this whole scene offers a really useful understanding of how we approach God in general, how humanity approaches God in general. Since the garden, since Cain, men have tried to define their own path to finding God, to approaching God. The very existence of many religions is evidence that men love to design their own path to God. But God can only be approached according to his rules. The Lord defines who and how and when we will come near to him. It must be this way because man has no capacity to reach God and survive it within his own power. 
The reason the unbelieving world continues to delude itself into thinking it can discover its own way to God is for two reasons. First, they create a God that is far less than the true God. So their God, the one they create in their own mind, is less holy, less all-knowing, less just, and less powerful. Because only a God who is less holy, less knowing, less just, and less powerful could tolerate someone with as much sin as everyone in the world brings to that encounter. And only by defining a God in lesser terms can we feel comfortable in our discovery of him. Secondly, they can continue to come up with their own ways to God because they imagine themselves as having less reason to fear God than they should. So while they assume a lesser God, they assume a greater me. They assume themselves to be far less sinful, far less in debt, in debt to God. They're probably a lot in debt, but they're far less debt to God, far less under any penalty that they should think that they have to pay. If they could only appreciate how much wrath has been stored up for them, for all sinners, if they could only understand that, they would never hope to see the God they say they seek, not until that debt has been rectified. The truth of Scripture is God is perfect, holy, and just, and he will judge all sin completely. But in his love and in his mercy, he has made a way available for us to approach him. He calls us just as he called the nation of Israel. We don't find him. He finds us. Then he sets the terms for our encounter. He defines the standard of holiness, which is perfection. He provides the means for canceling our debt, his son's death on the cross. He set the terms for our reconciliation, which was faith in that propitiation, in that payment on the cross in our place. We believe in resurrection, making possible eternal life. And then he sets the timing for our encounter, which is upon our death when we enter into his presence. He controls every step of the process. We have nothing to say about any of it. The Lord drives the entire process and he receives all the praise and glory for it. But if we think we can rest on our own merits, define our own terms, we can decide the timing of that encounter you're going to find that you're exposed for the fool you are on that day. Exodus 19, verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Well, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, well, this is the first of numerous times Moses is going to make his way up to the mountain and come back. They should have installed an elevator for him because the guy does this trip multiple times over the course of his service at the mountain. As the writer of Hebrews explained earlier, the arrival of the Lord now in this cloud just sitting down on the top of the mountain comes with great terror for the people. And this fantastic light show and sounds and so on. He descends first in fire and that fire burns continuously for the whole time that the Lord is at the top of that mountain. 
And the cloud is produced, we assume, from the burning of the mountain. The cloud is the smoke of the fire. With the cloud also comes lightning. Have you ever been near a lightning bolt? I mean, really close to one? It's stunning in its power and the sound and the shock and so on. This is happening continuously up there. And if that weren't enough, the mountain is quaking violently, it says. And the earthquakes weren't destructive. They clearly aren't killing people. But I don't think that means they're any less terror inspiring for these people. So they're watching all of this happen and they just want to leave. Furthermore, there's a trumpet sound and the trumpet keeps getting louder and louder, which was an indication of the Lord approaching. And now that it's become loud, Moses speaks to the Lord and the Lord answers and his voice sounds like thunder coming back to Moses. The fire, the burning, the smoke and all those other signs were a display of God's refining and purifying judgment. If you can put yourself there as an observer thinking to what it would feel like if you can do that, what impression does it leave you with concerning who God is? It leaves you with an impression of terrifying judgment. It instills great fear of the Lord in the people. And if the approach of the Lord instills this kind of fear into God's own people, including Moses, we're told, what kind of fear will the world experience as a whole when it faces judgment in a future day? And for that matter, what are we going to experience individually when we face the Lord in our judgment day? And I'm speaking about the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, the day in which our works are evaluated. But it's a judgment nonetheless. And it's coming into the presence of the Lord nonetheless. The writer of Hebrews gives us that answer, of course, in Hebrews 10, 26. It says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The fear of the Lord is what you're seeing created in the hearts of the nation of Israel as they sit at the base of this mountain and they look at the Lord's descent. He hasn't done anything to them. He hasn't called them out for any sin specifically. Just his presence brings that terror and fear. The fear of the Lord is a common term in Scripture. I've heard a lot of times people redefine the term fear of the Lord as merely respect for God. Awe and reverence or awe and respect. There is no biblical basis for that interpretation. Yes, the word fear can be used in that context, but that's not usually the context in which you find it in the Bible. The word for fear in Hebrew is yare, which means to be afraid, to become frightened, to be dismayed. And occasionally it can mean to show reverence. Here's an example of how that word is used. As Jacob prays to the Lord in Genesis 32, 32, 11, he says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he would come and attack me and the mothers with my children. That's the same Hebrew word. Fear that he would be attacked, that he would be killed. That's the meaning of fear. When it says, have a fear of the Lord, that's the attitude we're supposed to have toward our Creator. Now, to the extent we diminish that true meaning of fearing the Lord, you run the risk of making it easier for yourself to sin. You remove the concern that Hebrews tells us we should maintain which is that God may respond to our provocations. You don't want to ever forget how much God hates sin. Now, to be fair, the reason I think people have diminished the thought of what fearing God means is because we know the love of God too. And hallelujah that we do. And it is the love of God which will trump the judgment of God because the judgment that we're deserving has already been paid out on Christ. But that doesn't mean that he has forgotten the side of himself that hates sin or that can bring fear to those who sin, as Hebrews says, willingly. What are the judgments? What are the penalties? Well, we know what it's not. The penalty will not be the 
forfeiting of our salvation. But if I take that off the table, there's still an awful lot left. There is any number of ways in which God can bring discipline to his children for the sin that we promulgate. And if we live with the fear to begin with, we avoid the discipline because we forsake the sin. And we have good reasons to fear the Lord, even as believers. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Our sin is so great and he is so holy and powerful that fear is actually the natural and right response when we approach the Lord. Every time a prophet came into the presence of the Lord, they fall on their face in abject fear. In fact, even just the presence of an angel will produce that. Making it all the more remarkable and necessary that the Son of God came in the form of man in order to live among us. Emmanuel, God among us. He took a form that allowed him to live and eat with men without generating any fear or dread among those he visited because he had lowered himself for that purpose. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowering himself. He became humble even to the point of death on a cross. He did that because in his humbled, lowered form or position as man, while still all God, he was able to commune with us without invoking the fear that an all-powerful holy God does by his very nature. Notice in verse 21 that after Moses ascended to meet with God in the cloud for the first time, the Lord warns Moses, by the way, don't let anybody else cross that line and follow you up here. And Moses says, almost, yeah, we've already got that done. We already got the line down there. They've already been told we're good on that. They won't be coming up here. Well, why does God feel he has to remind him of that then at this point? I think it's because God knew in time that people would lose their fear of the Lord. And if you know how the story ends, it doesn't take them very long at all to lose their fear of the Lord. For all the trembling they're doing now, they're doing some serious partying later when Moses is up on the mountain. If they were to break through those barriers, the Lord says he will break out against them. It's a play on Hebrew. There's two words being used there for break out. In the first case, the word just means if they cross or pass through a barrier. The second one means to destroy or to break apart. You break through, I'll break you. That's what he's saying. And he knows he says without anyone touching him, he will be stoned. Without anyone touching him, he'll be shot through. Why? Because the one who would violate this barrier and bring their sinfulness into the presence of God has himself become cursed. Therefore, the Lord tells Moses that from this point forward, only Aaron and Moses himself, along with priests who we will consecrate later, can approach the Lord. Because the holiness of God places a necessary barrier between himself and his people. And therefore, only the Lord's chosen representatives may approach him. Those chosen representatives will intercede on behalf of the people. First, Moses, who we already know in pictures, Christ, the one who talks with God on behalf of the people. Aaron, the companion of Moses, who speaks for Moses to the people. And finally, the priests, who haven't even been named yet, of course, but they're going to have the opportunity to serve God in the tabernacle, which will be built out of the law. Those barriers that exist between man and God and our direct contact with the Lord are made necessary by the grace of God in response to our sin. Our sin is the problem driving our relationship with the Lord. The Lord is holy and perfect in all ways. That word holy just means set apart. So he is utterly set apart from sin. In the same way that light and dark cannot exist at the same moment in the same place, such that it is the same for the Lord. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He is as set apart from sin as light is from dark. Moreover, he is perfect in justice. So he has to be righteous in all things, including in his judgments. If sin were to enter into his presence, he must bring immediate justice against it. For to do otherwise is to allow sin to exist in his presence, which cannot stand. The penalty for sin is death, which is a way of saying absence from the presence of God. So if there is to be sin in his presence, sin will be judged. The judgment is death. 
to forestall all of that, God says, don't come near me. Don't come into my presence. In fact, don't even look at me. I'm in a cloud. So following the fall in the garden, after man entered into a state of sin, our spiritual nature was contaminated by sin. And we pass that along. We inherit that nature. That leaves all of us in jeopardy of God's judgment and the death that comes if we are entering into his presence. So as grace to all men, God has forever remained outside the presence of humanity since the fall of the garden. When do we finally get past that point and we can be in his presence again? In the new heavens and new earth. New Jerusalem descends and Paul says in 1 Corinthians that you see the Father and the Son becoming all in all again and the Son hands back all authority to the Father and we are in his presence. But even in the kingdom, the Father will remain in heaven and the Lord will reign from Jerusalem on earth. On earth you will not see the Father commune with man again until the new heavens and new earth. Why? Because it will not be till the new heaven and the new earth that all sin is gone. So once sin entered the world, God was forever outside the presence of that sin and would not return until it's gone. So in the meantime, we can't enter into his presence in a full way, not in our sinful state, and he can't come to the earth and be around it without destroying it under his judgment. So men can only enter into his presence or approach God through a mediator. In this case, Moses. Now, if that mediator is another sinful man, like Moses, then he's also in jeopardy for his own sin. So God has to permit that chosen representative to enter into his presence in such a way that God still conceals himself from even the representative. And in the law, the one who entered the Holy of Holies, once the tabernacle is established, he does so only after ritual cleansing, and then only when invited in by God through the word, he's given a day of the year in which he's allowed to enter, so you can only enter when invited God appoints who, and he appoints when, and he appoints how. And then even then, they fill the Holy of Holies with incense and smoke before he enters. So that as he enters into that place, he can't see a darn thing, because he's co- the whole thing is covered in smoke, and he's prevented from inc- being exposed to the glory of God in that, in that place. So, the Lord is teaching Israel that men approach the Lord only on his terms, only through a mediator. You can't define your own road to heaven your own way to find God. The Lord defines the ways, sets the rules, and brings penalty if we ignore them. You approach through a mediator who he picks. You don't get to pick your own mediator. Who's our mediator today? Our high priest, Christ. You can't pick a different one. In each age, though, the mediator has taken a slightly different form. In the time of the patriarchs, the patriarch himself was the mediator, the one God spoke to, the one who could speak to God. In this new phase of God's relationship, it will be through the priesthood of the law. Later, it comes through the prophets when God's Shekinah glory has gone from the temple. And today, God's representatives on earth are Christians, the holy priesthood of the believer. Every believer is a priest. Every one of us have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all of us are a potential representative for God to others on earth. We are priests under the high priest. So let's wrap up. The barriers to direct contact or fellowship with God are made necessary by our sin, And we've come to God the Father now through a mediator that he appointed, Christ alone. When we come back next time, we'll be looking at the law proper, starting with introduction, and then looking at the Ten Commandments, which form the beginning of the law. The Ten Commandments are just the first ten of 613 commandments that comprise the whole of the law. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for a deep and abiding knowledge of your word, particularly as it applies to grace and the law. We may not understand all these things and probably never will short of our glorification in your presence, but we seek to know what you will grant us so that we may live in a holy and pleasing way, keeping the fear of the Lord ever present in our minds so that it may motivate us away from sin 
and toward pleasing you. And I ask, Father, that you would keep the fear of the Lord in our hearts. And I ask, Father, that what we can communicate to others is both a respect for the just and, and uh, fearful responsibility that it is, or the just nature that you, give us, that you have and the fearful responsibility we have to, to please you, and also that we would represent the love and the grace that you make available through your Son. Let us be representatives of all that you are, teaching the whole counsel of the Word. And let it be powerful, Father, to change lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.